So I really appreciate Eric uh, always being willing to, uh, to fill in and pinch hit whenever uh, Andy calls upon him. He always does a great job, and so uh, I know you all appreciate him as well. Uh, today uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 as we've been moving our way through Romans and as we have been looking at the topic of sanctification. And today we're going to look at... Uh, Probably the, probably the second most controversial, uh, or, or the second in line of the controversial things that we would read throughout the book of Romans. Uh, the first controversial topic came pretty early in Romans chapter 1. Uh, that seems like a long time ago. Uh, today we're going to kind of look at another controversial topic, although I might not approach it in the way that you would, uh, that you would think. Uh, at the same time, we're going to look at one of what I believe to be one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Uh, as, we, uh, as we continue in this topic, Sanctified by the Spirit, Part 2, we're going to look at Romans 8.28, which for many of you, you would call this, uh, you would call this probably your life verse. Uh, I have several life verses. This, uh, this would, would, would definitely be one among them. But I would say that most of you who have been Christians for any length of amount of time, who have gone through any struggle or any hardship, you have probably at some point claimed Romans 8.28 and said this is just a verse that brings me great comfort. And uh, so we're just going to dive right into it today. Romans 8.28, starting in verse 26. Uh, stand with me as we read these verses together that talk about how the Spirit helps us whenever we pray, that talks about how God is good and works for our good, and then that talks about how God has predestined our salvation, has predestined our sanctification, has predestined our glorification, which should also bring us great comfort. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today, and we praise you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us your spirit, that you live with us, that you live inside of us. Lord, that you intercede for us. We thank you, God, for that, that you do good towards us and that you're working for our good. And we praise you today, God, that you have a plan, that you have always, always have had a plan, that your plan is unfolding on the earth. And God, we thank you that that plan involved us and involved us being a people of God, and being saved, and being in heaven with you. Lord, I pray that today, 
as many people here today are facing, facing circumstances of suffering through various means, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us through, uh, through these words that are spoken today and through these words that are read today. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So my topic today is uh, how God uses suffering to sanctify us. And that automatically kind of brings up the topic, well, why is there suffering to begin with? And um, there's, a, there's a lot of intellectuals and a lot of intellectual gymnastics uh, that go into some of these difficult words that we're going to look at uh, in our passage today. Uh, these difficult words that I have on the screen for you that I've kind of uh, popped out of the text for you today uh, sometimes cause us to dive into a, a, I guess you would say, the deep waters of logic and intellectualism and theological constructs in order to kind of explain away what it is that God has done. I really feel like that, that such is really unnecessary. I feel like that uh, a lot of hyper-intellectuals have robbed us of the richness of a beautiful doctrine in Scripture that brings us an immense amount of comfort. And I want to try to talk to you about that today. But first, I mean, let me just, let me just address these words briefly. Obviously, we believe that God has foreknowledge. Verse 29 tells us that God foreknew us. Well, God didn't just foreknow us. He foreknew everything that would happen. To foreknow basically just means to know in advance. How many of you believe that God is all-knowing? I mean, we believe that God knows everything. God doesn't just know everything. It's not like God just knows every math problem. But God also knows everything that is going to happen. In fact, God has what we call middle knowledge. God knows all the infinite possibilities of everything that even could happen. God is smarter than any of us could ever imagine in the things that he knows. And I don't know that anybody would disagree about that. But this second word, unfortunately, and I wish there was a, almost wish there was a different way that it could be translated in our English Bibles, uh, but this next word uh, causes much angst inside of people, and I don't really think that it should. But the word predestined basically means to mark out or determine in advance. Basically, it means that there is a predetermined course of events to bring about a planned consequence. Now, it amazes me how, how some people, it amazes me how some people don't believe this. Uh, after all, you and I predestine things all the time. I mean, think about it. We have uh, knowledge and we have power, and we, limited though they may be, we make plans and we carry them out. We do this whenever we build a house. We do this whenever we remodel uh, a garage. We do this whenever we work on a car. Uh, we do this all the time in how we plan our families and plan our careers and plan our futures. Now, since we're not all-knowing and since we're not all-powerful, our plans sometimes, oftentimes, a lot of the times, fail. But you predestine things all the time. You plan things all the time. Well, God does too. Uh, every Bible-believing Christian must believe in predestination in some form and in some fashion. After all, Jesus' death on a cross didn't happen by accident. 
God didn't plan it at the last minute after his plan for the Old Testament failed. He didn't scratch his head and say, wow, you know, the first covenant didn't work. I think maybe we need to get together and consult with ourselves among the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and said, what do y'all think we should do now? Oh, I know. One of you could go be born of a virgin and die on a cross for our sins. God didn't invent that plan on the fly. God knew in advance what he was going to do. Um, after all, that's, and, and so that's something that God planned in advance. We also, and I've said this before, we have the book of Revelation that God has planned in advance. There is a course of events with a planned outcome that is going to happen. It is a predestined, predetermined, prophesied outcome. It's recorded in the Old Testament right there for us to read. So our only other option, if we don't want to believe that God makes a plan and carries them out, our only other option would be something called open theism. You can look that term up. It basically means God doesn't know what he's going to do. He, does, he, has, he kind of has a plan, he has a little bit of knowledge, but he doesn't have absolute knowledge, and he doesn't have absolute power to carry it out. And so, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's doing what he can, but he, he's going to react to the free will of human beings, and he might change course midstream um, and whenever he feels like. In other, in other words, open theism basically claims that God is like us. And so those first two words... Um, give us problems sometimes from an intellectual standpoint, like, okay, so I believe that, but I don't really understand that. Um, this third one gives us problems from a practical standpoint, not necessarily a, a, a biblical standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, like what is God's will for my life? In other words, what are the details of my life and how can I know what they are, these, the details of my life that God is, uh, has planned for me? Well, in Scripture, the Bible speaks of God's will being much more broad than just the details of one person's life. Most of the time when we see in Scripture that talks about God's will, it talks about, it, it talks about God's will on a, uh, on, a, on a macro level rather than on a micro level, rather than on a little small detail level with one person's life. It speaks about God's will overall. And we know that God's will, obviously, is for people to be saved, to people to be sanctified and people to be glorified. And so, all that to say, this is kind of a lead-in of what I want to talk about today. There is a measure, there is a measure of your suffering, and I know this is hard to understand, there is a measure of suffering that we all face in this life that is foreknown, predestined, and according to the will of God. And I know, that's hard. I know that's hard to hear, but as we move through this, I really hope that you get comfort out of this, and I hope that you see today that you're not alone. As we look through the narrative of Scripture, we see these stories that are told of how God is good, everything He does is good, and He works for our good. We see this in Romans 8.28. God is good, everything he does is good, and he works 
for our good. Whatever plans he foreknows, whatever plans he puts into motion, whatever is according to his will, there is something that we know for certain. Whether we can explain the mystery of foreknowledge and predestination and God's will and his purposes, whether or not we can explain it and wrap our minds around it or not. And regardless of where we fall on that spectrum of belief, we can all agree that God is good. Everything he does is good, and he works for our good. I'll, this phrase, this one phrase right here, all things work together for good, to me just, just formed the core of the passage that we just read. We get so preoccupied with those first three words that I mentioned, and I can't preach this text without mentioning them. We get so preoccupied with those three words, and we get, we get lost in them intellectually sometimes. But to me, the, the, this phrase right here really forms the core of what I believe God is trying to communicate. This all things, all things work together for good. I have a question. Does that mean everything I mean, it could, it could mean, it could mean everything. Let me, let me tell you a phrase that I don't really like that much. Um, and I know that some of you have probably used this phrase before, and, and uh, it's, it's meant for comfort, but I don't really like the phrase, everything happens for a reason. I don't know that there is a reason why I wore these particular socks today. I'm just, I'm just not sure there's a, there's a reason that I wore socks, and there's a reason that I wear socks, but these particular socks that were crafted, and I don't know where they were made, probably China, and this, partic these, this particular sleeve of cotton that somehow way, made its way to a bookshelf that I bought and put on my feet, I don't know, I mean, did I, did I, am I wearing these particular socks? And let me tell you what, these are some flashy socks. You ready? You ready? I mean, these are some great socks. Bam! Look at that. All black. I know, for those of you who have uh, the, the crazy socks. I don't really like that phrase. Everything happens for a reason. But we do know that there are a lot of things that happen for a reason. And everything that God does absolutely happens for a reason. The Bible tells us that this all things work together for good. But here's the clue for an understanding that verse. Back up and look at Romans chapter 8 verse 18 and you will see that the writer of Romans who is the Apostle Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So whenever I read that, term, that word, all things, my mind goes back to verse 18, speaking about suffering. After all, if I inherit a million dollars, I don't have any problem thinking, oh, well, look what God did for me. When God does good things for me, I don't have any problem saying, oh, look what God did. God is so good. He gave me this and he gave me that and he did that for me. But what about the sufferings? What about the sufferings? We've we got to be real careful that we don't say all the good stuff, by my definition, comes from God. 
and all the bad stuff does not come from God. Well, maybe there is a measure of suffering, a measure of struggle that God uses and he works them together, these all things, especially these suffering things, he works them together for what? For good. He works them together for good. And I, I started thinking about this. How do I define good? Okay, well, if I'm struggling financially and I go to Romans 8, 28, and I say, well, I'm struggling with this, and God's working all things for my good, then I might have a tendency to say, well, good means money. Or if, if I got a bad health report, and maybe I go to bad, Romans 8, 28, and I say, well, you know, God's working this for good. Well, then maybe I might be tempted to say, well, good means I'm going to be healed of this. So we really have to define good. If we're going to really, understand the whole core of everything that we're talking about, we have to understand what good is in this passage. Beauty may be in the eye of the beholder, but we must see through God's eyes if we're really to understand the world correctly. After all, evil people call evil good. Some people might say, well, someone's done me wrong, and so I'm going to get them back. And then they feel good about that. Well, listen, revenge is not good. Murder is not good. Rape is not good. Abuse, these things are not good. Alabama winning a football game is not good. I mean, there are some things that are just not good in this life. So what's, what is good? Well, I think cake is good. I think vanilla ice cream is good. Man, I think this weather we've been having is good. I think, I think paying my rent is good. Being healthy is good. Making straight A's, that's good, right? Hitting home runs. Man, when my kid does that, that's good. Let me ask you a question. Is the, uh, um, uh, an evil definition of good or a health and wealth prosperity definition of good? Do you really think that that's what the Bible is talking about here? When it's talking about good? Do you really think that's the good? I want to suggest to you today that all of that falls short of what God says is truly good. You know the first time that God ever declared something good? Do you remember what it was? Opening pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. The Lord said, let there be light. And what did God say? God saw that it was good. And then the second day, the Lord made the earth and the sea. And the Bible says that God saw and said, man, that's good. The Bible says he made vegetation. And he said, he saw it and he said, that's good. Then he made the stars. He looked up at them or down at them. He said, man, those are good. He made sea creatures. He made land creatures. He said, that's good. He made man. He made Adam and Eve. And he said, it's good. And then the Bible says that God stepped back and he looked at all that he had made. Everything that he had made. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God said, it is very good. I think it's important to understand good from God's eyes. What do you see that's good. Well, if we were to look through God's eyes, 
then we would see a world without evil in which everyone is holy and in which everyone walks in the glory of God and one in which everyone is living according to the will and the purposes of God, we would, look in, we would look at a world and we would say, when sin is reversed, when it's removed, that's good. We would look at our own lives and we would say, when I walk in purity and holiness and I'm the creature that my creator intended for me to be, that's good. When people get saved, And when people get sanctified, and when people fall in love with Jesus, and they live on this earth the way that God intended them to be, that's good. So what does God have to do? Listen, what does God have to do to restore good, to make this world good again to make you good according to how the bible defines it wouldn't it be great if suffering wasn't necessary wouldn't it be great in order to restore the whole world to the goodness in which god originally created it wouldn't it be great if no one had to die on a cross Wouldn't it be great if it wasn't necessary for bowls of wrath and trumpets to be blown at the the end of time? Wouldn't it be great if, uh, if, if one of 12 brothers didn't have to get thrown into a well? Or if a guy named Job didn't have to lose everything that he owned? Or if people called the ancient Hebrews didn't have to go through a cycle of idolatry? Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to get sick, if people that you love didn't have to die? Wouldn't it be great if none of that was necessary in order for good to be restored? But that's not the story that we see in the Bible. How much good has been done through the story of Job? This guy who had so many horrible, terrible things happen to him. He lost all that he owned. How much good has come from that? How many people have been saved through that? How many of you have been personally encouraged and built up and strengthened through the story of Job? All of us. What about the story of Joseph? You remember what happened to him? Joseph's 12, uh, Joseph was, was the youngest of 12 brothers, and his brothers were jealous of him, and they threw him in a well, and they sold they had intention to kill him, and they sold him into slavery, and all types of bad things happened to him. He was falsely accused of trying to, um, uh, of, of, uh, in, in Potiphar's house, he was uh, thrown in prison after, uh, after, I mean, all types of bad, th- I don't have short time to go through the story of Joseph. All types of bad things happened to him. But then he eventually came the second in command under Pharaoh, and there was a major drought that affected the land of Israel, and you, you know the rest of the story. Joseph was in a position to rescue and to save and to preserve his family, and he brought them to Egypt, and he told his brothers... In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you remember what he said? He said, you intended evil for me, but God meant it for what? For good, for the saving of many lives. Do you think you could have comforted that young man while he was in this well? Hey, don't worry about it, dude. It's going to be all right. God's going to use it for good. Do you, do you think that would have helped him at all? I mean, just to give some kind of trite statement, oh, don't worry, you're right in the, you're right in the will of God, man, everything's going to be great. 
I mean, we look at stories like this, the story of Job and Joseph, and the story of Jesus. What is the worst thing that human beings could possibly do? The worst sin that human beings as a whole could possibly do, they could kill their creator. And that's exactly what they did, is they murdered the author of life. They put him on a cross. Wouldn't it be great if none of that had to happen? Look what Psalms verse 119, verse 67 through 71 says. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I love verse 68. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. You see that? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Now listen, the Bible doesn't say that all things are good. It doesn't say that. In our text to say it does not say all things are good. And it certainly never ever in the Bible does it say that God that, that God is evil and that God does evil. Rape and murder and genocide, the abuse of power, they're not good. Drunkenness, racism, idolatry, sorcery, lying, violence, adultery, these things are not good. But the Bible says that they work together for good. That's an important distinction, that they work together for good. That there is some type of mysterious synergy between bad things, evil things that are done, and God's purposes in restoring this world to the good that he originally designed for it. I mean, think about it. If cow manure is useful as a fertilizer in producing healthy soil, then maybe suffering and pain caused by evil can be used by God for good purposes. And, by the way, it does not say that all things are for our immediate good. That's not what the Bible says. Not, it may be not even an earthly good. If you're looking for that in this promise, you're going to be disappointed. If you're looking for God to somehow make you a health and wealth gospel by claiming this verse, everything is going to be okay. God's going to make all my dreams come true. I'm going to be just healthy, wealthy, and wise all my life, and everyone's going to love me, and everything's going to be great because God's working for my good. That's, I hope that we see by now that's not the good that we're talking about. We're going to be disappointed, and we'll never have eyes to see God's purposes unless we see the ultimate and eternal purposes um, behind what God is doing. By the way, I mentioned the story of Joseph being thrown into a well. And then we know that, we know that God saw, and we know that God foreknew, and we know that God planned for Joseph to be second in command in Egypt and for the saving of many lives. But you know, that's not the end of the story, right? You know that a whole bunch of bad things happened to the nation of, or to the ancient Hebrews while they were in Egypt. A whole bunch of bad things happened. Hebrew women were giving birth to children who were being thrown into the Nile. Now think about that. 
Do you think that God saw the good that was going to happen with Joseph becoming second in command and saving his whole family, but didn't somehow foresee this infanticide that was going to happen with his people while they were in Egypt? Of course God saw these things. But try explaining that to a Hebrew woman who just had her baby killed. Try explaining to her, say, now look, you've heard the story of Joseph, by the way, in the future there's going to be this guy named Moses, and he's going to deliver all of y'all through acts of power. God's going to use him, part of Red Sea. Y'all going to have a land to yourself. That, that big picture would never be able to be seen by that woman that just had her baby snatched from her arms. Her pain is real. She would never understand it. She would never be able to explain that there's going to be a purpose and that you would never be able to give her details about that purpose. She would never see it. The only thing that we're left with is faith. That's all we're left with. We're left with faith. We're left with saying, God, I'm going to trust you even if I don't see it. So God is good. Everything that he does is good. And he works for our good. And I hope that by now you understand what that good is. The Bible tells us in the next verse, in verse 29, it basically said that God predestined our sanctification. What does it mean when the Bible says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son? What does that mean? That basically means that it is God's will for us to be holy. That it's God's will for us to walk in righteousness. That it's not just God's will for us to punch a ticket for heaven. That it is God's will for us to be godly. Is there any greater good? Is there any other greater representation of God's original design for human beings as pictured in the garden than for us to be sanctified and holy before God? I mean, if we define good as just being healthy and wealthy and wise and having a long life, is, is that really the ultimate good that God wants to see? No, God wants to see us walk in this holiness and in righteousness. And he, he set a plan in motion to make sure that it would happen. It included him sending his spirit to be with us and to indwell us, giving us his word. I mean, God didn't just walk around and just pick a bunch of human beings at random and decide to save them and throw them in a basket somewhere and then one day they one day they get to be glorified with him in heaven that certainly is was not God's plan God's plan is that we would have a relationship with him God's plan is that we would walk in holiness and so if you're here today and if you claim Jesus as your savior What you're saying, essentially what you're saying, is that holiness is on the horizon for you. That there are purposes and plans that are unfolding in your life, and that even includes suffering so that you might be holy. I think about some of the most significant times of spiritual growth in my life. And they came through suffering and hardship. I think about the times that I have developed the most as a pastor, and they came through suffering and hardship. I think about the times that me and my wife have come closer together and communicated together, and, and, uh, and uh, our marriage has become more like Christ, and I can think it's whenever we have conflict. 
there is something about the, 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 the trials of Job. There is something about our faith being purified like gold, refined in the fire. There's something about the, the hard things in this life that God uses to make us holy. And that's about the best news that we could hear. Wouldn't it be discouraging if I said, look, if good things happen, then you'll grow spiritually. But when bad things happen, it really damages your spiritual growth. That would be one of the most discouraging things that I could say to you. Is that when hard, difficult, bad things happen to you, that it hurts you spiritually. That's the opposite of what this verse is telling us. That is the opposite of what this whole passage is telling us. It's telling us that even when bad things happen, that you grow spiritually. In fact, and we're, we're going to get to this next week, and, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. But it really, what it says is that when bad things happen to you, that it should accelerate your spiritual growth. That it should, in fact, make you stronger. So what are we to do in the midst of all this confusion and uh, not understanding how it all works together and not wanting to suffer but knowing that suffering produces sanctification and not really being able to see the big picture of God's purposes when like that Hebrew woman that's having her baby thrown in the river, you know, just feeling the pain of that in a moment. How, how, how do we deal with the fact that I'm not going to see the big picture? I can't see the big picture of why I'm sick or why I'm poor or why bad circumstances are happening in my life. How are we to deal with that? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Bible says the Spirit helps us. He helps us. Whenever we can't explain God's purposes and how He foreknows things, but He doesn't do bad things and how all that works together and, and how He predestines things, but yet I can't say that God does evil and how does that... How, how do we understand all that confusion? And how do we understand, how do we, how do we pray in the midst of our pain? Whenever we can't even logically really figure it all out and really understand it, the Spirit helps us. It says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. What are our weaknesses? We've seen these already. Romans chapter 7, our struggle with sin. The cycle of sanctification where we see God's law and we want to follow it, but the sinful nature is there. The Spirit helps us in that weakness as we struggle with sin. As we struggle with suffering. The Lord, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit's right there with us whenever, whenever we have some type of suffering, whether it be uh, whatever it might be in this life. The Spirit also helps us as we struggle to understand logically God's purposes and how it, how it all fits together. In the midst of this corrupt world, we say God's in control of this world, but there's so much evil in this world, but yet God is good. And trying to understand that and trying to reconcile that and, and understand predestination and foreknowledge and the will of God and His purposes, the Spirit helps us. When, when we're weak to understand that, when we're weak in our suffering, when we're weak and struggling with our sin, the Bible says we don't know what to pray for, as we ought to. And maybe the problem is that we are praying crossless prayers. Maybe our problem is we always try to pray what we define as good, 
rather than seeking to pray prayers of sacrifice, prayers of surrender, prayers of, of trust, prayer of saying, God, I don't, I don't understand your purposes. I don't know why there's suffering and pain. I don't know why you don't end it all right now. I don't know why you don't just snap your fingers and restore us to a perfect world like in the garden. I don't understand why, why it's, it's your will for bad things to happen like with Job or with Joseph and how you use those things. I don't understand it. So I don't even know how to pray. Maybe we need to learn how to pray prayers that involve a cross. A pray prayers that involve, Lord, I'm, I know that I am held in your hand. Prayers of trust, knowing that we belong to God and that he is never going to let us go. He is never going to give up on us. And he is always going to be right there with us. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. What if we sought to pray for what God was passionate about? You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit generates a groaning passion for the things of God. Now listen, I know that's probably not you, what you wanted to hear from this passage. I know probably what you wanted to hear is the Holy Spirit's going to show you exactly why that bad thing happened in your life. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. Or maybe you, say, maybe you wanted to hear that uh, God was going to show you um, uh, exactly how He was going to fix all your problems. But unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says here. But the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that He intercedes for us. Two times in this passage, the Bible says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Next week, we're going to read how the Bible says that Jesus intercedes for us. You see, the Holy Spirit is like a translator. As we have this groaning inside of us for the things of God, we don't know how to articulate it because we don't have knowledge. We don't, we don't completely understand. We're not like God. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We don't have eyes to see everything perfectly. But we groan inside of us for the things of God. And the Holy Spirit just knows how to express perfectly to God His will. Do you want answered prayer? Pray for the Spirit to show you what God has planned. And He might and He might not. But either way, you can exercise your faith. Sometimes if the Holy Spirit shows you what God has planned... Maybe that'll put you in a crisis of belief because you would think, well, I don't know how God could ever do that. Well, that requires faith. It requires the same faith if the Holy Spirit doesn't show you. Either way, we're stuck in a position of faith. You want answered prayer? Seek to pray for the things that God is passionate about. Jesus told us to pray that way. Pray according to God's will. If you don't know, ask God. The Bible says that he'll give wisdom to anyone that he gives them liberally to all who ask. So what are you struggling with today? What is, what, is that, what is that thing in your life that you're struggling with today and you're struggling to pray about? Do you want to you spend some time now just praying and praying trust in God? He may not show you the purpose behind it and he may not deliver you from it, but he can make you godly in the midst of it. That is the whole point of this passage. So let's bow our heads. And let's pray together. I want you to just offer a prayer to God right now. I want you to offer a prayer of trust in God right now. For some of you here today, this very thing that I've talked about, this problem of evil, the fact that there's evil in the world, maybe that's been a barrier 
of you believing in Jesus. And maybe you would say right now, maybe you'd say right now, I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to understand why a good God would allow bad things to happen to good people. Maybe you would say, now, I don't have to understand it. I just have to believe in faith. Would you pray a prayer of faith right now? Would you just trust God right now with your whole life? Call upon his name. Ask him to save you. If you've never, if you've never done that before. Maybe you know you're saved, but you don't know why you've had to go through such a hard time lately. Would you also just pray a prayer of faith and trust in God? Pray a prayer of faith knowing that He has you in His hand, that He's good, that everything He does is good, and that He's working for your good. Just pray a prayer of belief in that. God, the first thing that we want to pray right now is, God, we're sorry that we question you. We question you all the time. We don't understand why something happens or this happened or that happened. God, we're sorry that we question you. Lord, we want to believe in you with all of our heart. We want to trust you with everything that we are. Lord, I pray for those today that are struggling to believe in you. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak to them. And, Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that your spirit would help us in our weakness. And I pray, God, that you would show us what we should pray for. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.